0: Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together.
1: I trust that you have enjoyed this study in Nehemiah as I have enjoyed getting to know this Old Testament figure, And seeing how beautifully Nehemiah points us to the New Testament and ultimately to Christ, our Messiah. This is our final sermon in this series. We uh, began this earlier this year. And so, as we come to these final verses of the final chapter that was written in the Old Testament, there's so much more that Nehemiah teaches us than just brick and mortar, there's so much more than just the walls and the gates. What we see about this individual is his love for God, his love for God's people, his love for God's glory, and his love for God's work, and that he puts everything in his life toward. And his life is not a wasted life. Nehemiah was a powerful leader, and he was an effective leader. Now, we've seen he stepped away between chapter 12 and chapter 13. He went back for a season, maybe five, ten years, back to report back to the king. He said he was going to come back. He went back. He was a man of his word. And then he returned. He came back home to Jerusalem and found it in a complete mess again. The people had just gone off the rails and were living in disobedience, had broken over all of their renewed covenants that they had made over the word of God and there was Eliashib, a horrible high priest, leading badly, an evil leader. And when Nehemiah comes back as just a governor, but he's a righteous leader and he makes a difference, what did he find when he came back? The Israelites had desecrated the priesthood in the temple. They defaulted on their giving to God's work. They defiled the Sabbath day. And they disobeyed God's commands for marriage. And we looked at that specifically last week. And remember, we have said throughout, we say this at Christmas time, we say this at other times, God had his people separated from other nations primarily because of paganism, because of idolatry. Ruth was an idol worshiper, and Ruth was brought in when she shed all of her paganism. She was brought into marriage, brought into Israel, and brought all the way into the line of Christ. So it's, it's important for us to know that a separation was primarily because of belief. That God wanted his people to not mix, like Solomon did, his faith with the beliefs of all of those women that he married so as we think about it today in the new testament paul wrote in corinthians and we've talked about it many times to not be unequally yoked to not have mixed faith marriages it has nothing to do with what ethnicity you are we're all part of the same family we all share the same father in his bloodline and that's adam it primarily deals with, do you worship the creator God? Do you worship the living God or do you worship idols? Very different than do you know Christ is a very different proposition than are you religious? Would you call yourself a Christian? Oh, good. No, do you love Jesus? If I enter into a relationship with you as somebody single looking at a you know, potential mate Are you going to help me follow Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you love his church? And Paul said, that is the key, to not be unequally yoked. So what will we be remembered for? Is that a memory that will last for all eternity? What will you be remembered for? There's five leadership lessons that we've been looking at in chapter 13. The first one in the first nine verses that Nehemiah lived in consecration to God. He he lived in consecration to God. Never give to man that which God God alone deserves. God's instruction was clear. Satan's temptation is always just compromise. You don't have to obey everything. God's people must lead with courage. Then we see through Nehemiah's Example in his final reforms, support the work of God. And we saw this in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 13. Do not withhold from God that which he has required. And so like Nehemiah, we need to identify the need in God's work. We need to address the issues in our own hearts and lives when our giving is poor, when our giving is lackluster, when it's not where it should be. What has distracted my heart? What has taken a priority in my heart and in my life? And then take necessary steps to become a generous giver, And invest resources into the hands of trustworthy leaders. This is what Nehemiah did. So there in Nehemiah 13, just look at verse 14. These verses I have somewhat treated lightly until today's message. Verse 14 says, remember me, this is Nehemiah, oh my God concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Remember me. Thirdly, we see this lesson from Nehemiah is to honor the Lord on his day. Honor the Lord's day. Do not forget the Lord on the day set aside by God for worship, for remembrance, and for rest. So each one of us need to recognize where do we tend to be disobedient in this? How do we respond with obedience? And as we remember the holiness and the severity of the Lord, We want to remember that forgetting God is always the way down. You can learn that from the Old Testament prophet Jonah. He went down, he went down, he went down. That's disobedience. And so then we need to repent of the sin of profaning the Lord's day for making the Lord's day, the day of worship about me. What do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What's important to me instead of what is important to the Lord as he cares for me better than I can care for myself. The Lord cares for your family better than you can care for your family. So it's about being recalibrated to what is eternal and what is most important. And then we can rest in the goodness and the grace of God. And so then we find in verse 22, Nehemiah says again, verse 22, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates. To keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Hased is that Hebrew word. Spare me. Remember me. Hold me up. Don't forget me. Fourth lesson we saw last week obey the scriptures. Do not disregard the word of the Lord. That is easy for each one of us to do. It's just disregard the word of the Lord. Just set it aside because I have to, I think, I, whatever, feel. If we're going to love what God loves and we're going to hate what he hates, we're going to learn from past examples. And remember, Nehemiah chased that grandson of Eliashib from his presence who was in a marriage, an arranged marriage with Tobiah the Ammonite, you've married the enemy. Are you kidding me? He said, I chased him from me. Come back, I'll lay hands on you. We have to let go of bad influences. Stop holding on to the things that take us contrary to God's word. So here, Nehemiah says another challenge. He says this, remember, but now he's saying, remember them. In verse 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So remember them, keep this in mind, Lord. Keep this before you, Lord. Nehemiah chose to live in purity and serve the Lord. And we see this, Nehemiah cleaned house. He maintained a generous heart of giving to the Lord and he surrendered all the outcome again of his life of his investment into the hand of the Lord. So there in your Bibles, today we're just going to visit these two verses again that close out this Old Testament book. In verse 30, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the fruits the closing words remember me oh my god for good remember me loved ones the final lesson we learn from Nehemiah is this trust the lord with the results trust the lord with the results and i don't want you for a second to think what well, That's so good that our pastor has learned this one, and he can teach this to us. The chance may come. It's not even a chance. I mean, it's going to happen that as elders gather, as small group leaders gather, as family members gather, church family, as we anticipate a building to be built that we're going to have to, you might have to remind me, hey, pastor... I heard this amazing sermon. I mean, yours was all right, but from Nehemiah was a wonderful, remember me, oh my God. Trust the Lord with the outcome, with the results, with whatever happens, whatever will be, trust the Lord with that. Do not grow weary in doing well. Do not grow weary in doing well. For in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. You see, godly leadership is up to upside down leadership. Serving the Lord, especially through his church, which is what Christ loves and died for, it's his bride. So there's a protective element that the Lord Jesus has over his church. So again, you can't say, well, I love Jesus, I don't have time for the church. You can't separate the two. You can't tell me, Pastor, I really think you're awesome. You know, you can't say that to my wife. I really like you, but you're a husband, man. I mean, but you're all right. We two are one. If you have a problem with me, you have a problem with her, right? If you have a problem with her, you have a problem with me. Am I saying that the right way? I don't know. Now I have a problem with myself. Pray for me. I'll have to listen back to what I said. when that podcast comes out. Don't even know. Galatians 6, 9, Paul says it in the New Testament, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not give up. You see the farmer analogy there? I'm I'm bad at farming. I plant the seed. I plant a grass seed. I am watching every day. Where is it? Where is it? Spot I burned in my grass, I overfertilized, and now I'm trying to fix it. 2 Thessalonians, he says it again, 3.13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Brothers, hang in there. It's so easy to lose our focus. It's so easy to lose heart. It's so easy to get frustrated like, are you kidding me? You're where again? You're doing what again? So what should we learn, and how can we best follow in Nehemiah's footsteps? here's the principles. If we're going to trust the Lord with the results, then what does it look like? Because it's easy to say, okay, I'll trust the Lord. What does that look like? How do I measure that? How do I know if I'm actually trusting the Lord? When you go to the doctor, they just don't look at you and say, how you doing? I'm doing great. Okay, great visit they usually do this kind of stuff to you. Mm-hmm, 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 And then they take the thing and they put it on and they, mm-hmm, they cough, cough, breathe deeply, breathe deeply, hang on the other side, you know. They're doing testing. They, they hear what you're saying. They, that's important, but they actually want to know what's going on down inside, and we don't have good measures of being able to detect how we're really doing. So what are we going to learn? How are we going to measure this? First of all, leverage our power to bless. Leverage our power to bless. This is what should be true of every Christian, of every follower of Christ, is that whatever influence that God has given to you, maybe you're a mother, maybe you're a father, son, daughter, brother, sister, employee, employer, You've been given influence. You've been given a position. You've been given a place as a neighbor. You've been given a place in society, a place in community, a place in the church family for what? It's to be a blessing. This is what Nehemiah shows us over and over and over again is that he was never self-absorbed and self-consumed. At Do you know who I am? You know, give me a name tag. I'm, I'm, you know, the king's guy. Give me the name tag. Give me the shirt, front and back. I want everybody to announce that wherever I go. Here comes the king's guy. Now, he could go on a quiet mission at night and look for himself of what's the need here, what needs to be done. Leverage our power to bless. Nehemiah was a meek man. And meekness, though it rhymes with weakness, is not the same thing. Meekness is the picture of a horse that is massive, massive power. And you put a bridle in its mouth, and it will go wherever it's supposed to anyway. Not not usually when I'm on it. But if somebody actually knows what they're doing on a horse, it will follow. Just controlled by the bridle, its power, its strength under control. This is Nehemiah. He's a powerful man. He could have focused on himself. He could have used his position and power to leverage people for his own purposes, for his own pleasure, for his own table, for his own meal, for his own place to live. Instead, he chose to use his power and his position to be a blessing to others as he served Yahweh sacrificially. The mission began back in chapter 1. He got the bad news. The city is in ruins, and he cried, he wept, he fasted, he mourned over the holy city in chapter one. He moved forward with plans to make a difference in Jerusalem and he prayed about it and he prayed about it. The first opportunity came up and he brought it to the attention of the king. He mobilized people into action. He made the journey. He gave generously toward meeting the needs of people and giving to God's work. This was through his whole life From the point we meet Nehemiah to the point that he fades off the pages of Scripture, he's a generous individual. He was always thinking of the mission. 400-plus years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus sets the standard for his followers, and he gave his expectation of all believers until he returns. And who is Jesus? The greatest of all, far greater than Nehemiah because Nehemiah died. It leaves us saying, we need somebody better. We need someone better than Nehemiah. He was great, but we need someone better. And Jesus comes, and he denounced the jockeying for power that happened among his disciples all the time. Who's the greatest? Hey, who can sit on your right hand? How about the left, Lord? Listen to the instruction that that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, read it with me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not just serve. He came to die. He willingly laid down his life for sinners so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed by grace. Loved ones, isn't it easy to be offended? It's easy to have our feelings on the sleeves and just waiting for people to just look at me wrong, just say something to me wrong. We're just waiting on people. We're always, you know, thinking, you know, in these terms of do I like what you've done? Do I like those looks? That's not Jesus. Humanly, it's hard to overlook the faults and the failures of others for their greater good and the glory of God. But Paul leveraged the example of Jesus in his letter to the Philippians as he called the Philippian believers to strive for unity in the work of the gospel. Philippians 2, verse 5, he says to those Philippian believers, and we can learn from this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, you possess this in Christ Jesus, You're in Christ. You have his mind, verse six, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, read it with me, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you realize that your life will bring God glory Whether you confess him in this life while you have an opportunity and enjoy him forever, or if that day comes upon you like a thief in the night and you stand before him in judgment, your life will bring him glory. But he has made a way for you, a sinner to become a redeemed son of God. We praise him for this. So, loved ones, how can we leverage our power, our influence to bless others? Is that how you think when you prepare for coming to worship? Is that how you think? I experienced that vacation Bible school a week ago, doing a roof a couple weeks ago, camp out, whatever we're doing. I can sense this among the people. How can I be a blessing? How can I serve? How can my life be leveraged? God, use me however you want to use me. Here I am. This is surrender. What else do we learn from Nehemiah? To be fervent in prayer to be fervent in prayer here we find him at the close of this letter and he's praying again he is faithfully asking god to do the impossible again his life was characterized by prayer by fervent prayer when he first got the news back in chapter 1 what did he do he went fasted and prayed for months before anything moved, before anything appeared to change. And then he sat in the presence of the king, and the king says, uh, what's, what's, what's wrong, Nehemiah? You've never been sad in my presence, Nehemiah. What's, what's going on that I don't know about? It's not good for me to not know about something. You're, you're my guy. And in Nehemiah 2.4, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. when the king says, what is it that you're requesting? Lord, help me. Oh, that's a real theological prayer. Are any of you scared to pray? Then take heart in Nehemiah. Lord, help me. If you're ever in a group and you pray and somebody's praying and they pray and it's your turn and goes around and you feel awkward, I'm just going to plagiarize Nehemiah. Lord, help me. It's okay. You're not talking to the people around the 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 group. You're talking to God and He's listening and He stoops down. Lord, help me. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help my selfishness. Lord, help me. I need your help. Lord, provide. He petitioned God to not forget Him in chapter 5. Remember me for my good, oh my God. And all that I've done for this people, I don't think they're going to remember, Lord. I don't think they much appreciate my ministry, Lord. But if you remember me, it's enough. You remember me. When facing extreme opposition in chapter six, verse fourteen, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Six nine, and remember Tobiah and Sandballad. Oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Six fourteen. Remember them. Remember me. Remember them. Don't forget them. Chapter 13, three times already, we've seen him saying, remember me, remember me, remember me. To the New Testament, Jesus was fervent in prayer. He would slip away often to places of solitude and be alone with his Father in heaven and pray. Do you know how hard that is for us to do now? Is to just turn everything off and just get alone and pray? And Jesus, the night before he chose the 12 apostles, including Judas, what did he do? Luke 6:12? In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. all night. He didn't say, "Do you know who I am? I'm the Son of God. I'll sleep, and tomorrow I'll choose the twelve. He was in fellowship. With the Father all night. This this group. You know? Was it the first thirty minutes of prayer, eleven, and the last night spent over Judas? I don't know. But I love Calvin's explanation of why did why did the Lord choose Judas? to forever remind all humanity that you can be that close to Jesus, you can be that religious, and you can fail miserably, so don't put your eyes on men. Judas was right there, and he kept his eyes on himself. Luke 11, 1, he taught his disciples to pray. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. You know the best way for us to learn to pray is to pray. Is to get with others and pray. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. We don't know what you're doing. You're not just going through memorized lines. How do we pray like that? Like they're watching him pray in a certain place. They find him. They don't interrupt him. They're not rude. They don't come in and and just, you know, roll over his prayer time. They wait and they watch and they realize, we have a long way to go. He's praying. Will you show us? Will you teach us what you're doing? And that's where he gives the, the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer. Well, did it work? Well, the apostles led by example. It's hard to find in the book of Acts anything that happened that was not a response of God to the prayers of his people. In Acts 1, they're waiting on the Spirit. When in Acts 6, there's trouble in the church, they install men serving like deacons to meet the daily needs of the widows. In Acts 13, they fast and pray before sending out missionaries. They learned how to pray. Oh, may the Lord help us to be known for fervent prayer. Isn't that one of our distinctives? Distinctive number three. Right there, fervent prayer. Believing in the power of, not prayer, believing in the power of God. We're devoted to praying boldly without ceasing. There's a lot of people that pray around the world, but they're not praying to the Father in the Spirit through the Son. And that is what we're called to do. So, God, make us, make us a place that responds to the word, Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Paul writes, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Keep praying, Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. See, worry, what, what good is ever accomplished by worrying? nothing worry actually will kill you so here is the alternative here's what to do in the face of worry it's pray but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving that will change a worrying heart oh what if what about what if what about if you replace that with, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I'm thankful for, and you begin filling in all of the ways that the Lord has provided and been with you and kept you, then suddenly you're turning your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. This is just biblical. That by it, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Bring your requests. But you see it even in the order there, it's bringing those requests later rather than just rushing in with, I need, I need, help me, I need, I need. It's, who are you? I worship you. We see this in Nehemiah. 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul says, first of all then, this is a priority. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for who? All people. All people. That person bothers you at work? Are you praying for them? We're commanded to. But better than yet, we're invited to. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. I love what Daniel Henderson says. Prayerlessness is my declaration of independence from God. Loved ones, whenever you and I are not praying, we're using July 4th, Independence Day, to say that to our creator. I don't need you. I don't need to pray. I have this. I'm busy. I have a full day. I'm tired. I'm distracted. When I pray, I'm declaring my dependence on him. When you pray, when we pray as a church for whatever spiritual needs, building needs, we're declaring, we're dependent on you, Lord. We don't have it. We have no might, we have no power, we have no wisdom, no ideas, but our eyes are on you. And the Lord loves, he delights in answering those prayers. Are we fervent in prayer? How can we grow in that? Also, we learn from Nehemiah, be humble in posture. Be humble in posture. Nehemiah was devoted to the Lord in worship. And we see this, that here he is, remember me, oh my God. You're my God. You're God. I'm not. I'm yours. I belong to you. He's humble in posture as he's devoted to the Lord in worship. He kept his Lord, his focus upon the Lord and off of himself. You know, that's the only way to keep our focus off ourselves is to keep our focus on the Lord. If my focus is off the Lord, like Peter, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. Okay, come on. And he gets walking on the waves and then he starts looking out. What am I doing? What happens? He begins to sink. Lord. Oh, that lesson is timeless for us. Nehemiah, the governor, he he attributed accomplishments not to his own leadership abilities, not to his own strengths, but rather in chapter two, verse eight, how is it all happening? This is what he says. The good hand of my God was upon me. Do you hear the difference? Does that sound like somebody who's an arrogant leader? "I did, I did, I accomplished. I, I, me, me, my." Like Nebuchadnezzar. Like many politicians. Not, go, not this governor. Not Nehemiah. How did all of this How did all of this happen so quickly, Nehemiah? The good hand of my God right there. I got you. You remember being a child and being afraid or being nervous and somebody, a grandparent or a parent, just put their hand right down on your shoulder and maybe just put it kind of right around your neck like, I got you. Not, Not grabbing you, like choking you, but just steadying you like, I got you. Or maybe they took your hand and they said, I have you. And they held you Maybe you've done that for a child or a grandchild, and you're holding them. And Nehemiah says, this all happened not because of me, but because the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah knew where every victory would come from. How's this going to happen, Nehemiah 2.20? The God of heaven will make us prosper. It's not just for me. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But then he says to the enemies, you have no portion. You have no portion here no right, no claim in Jerusalem. This leader encouraged the people of God, don't be discouraged. Keep your eyes on the Lord in chapter four, verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Get your eyes off the enemy. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And he says in 420, our God will fight for us. This is a leader whose eyes are fixed on the Lord, and so the people are around, and they're getting shaky. They're getting, I don't know. Can we trust? Look at your leader. His eyes are fixed on the Lord. Follow in his example. Don't waver. The Lord will provide. Jesus, again in the New Testament now, the greatest of all, was humble, and he submitted to the Father's will on our behalf. When in the garden he prayed on the night of his betrayal and he sweat as it were drops of blood Luke 22:42 saying Father if you are willing remove this cup from me This is huge in this prayer What is the will of God Does the will of God include suffering if you are willing remove this cup from me nevertheless Jesus prayed not my will but yours be done is that the character of our prayers loved ones not my will not to ever put god in contempt of our court. If you do, then I will, and if you don't, then I judge you, blame you. Some even damn him, because how can a good God allow this, that, or the next thing? Those lies all come from the deceiver. Lord, you are good, the psalmist said. Teach me your statutes. All that you do is good. Teach me your statutes. First Peter 2:21. Peter learned this. For to, you, for to this you have been called. What's our calling? Okay. Peter is very fixed on he's called you. He's called you. He's called you out of darkness into his marvel. He chose you. You weren't a people. He chose you. He's he's just his whole letter is infused with the doctrine of election to people who have they're losing everything. They're in great trial, in great tribulation. And so they're they're second-guessing everything. And he says, Here's your calling for this. You have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Even when, and we can even say especially when, we enter times of suffering. Saying, I didn't put myself on this. So I will trust the Father. I'll trust his heart. In John 13, Jesus, he washed the disciples' feet. He gave that example so that when Peter would later write that, he's remembering the greatest of all became the servant of all. He took the lowest standing, that position of the the slave that would be at the door, and Jesus took off his outer garment, and he wrapped himself in that slave's garment, and he washed my feet, and I argued with him, and he suffered for me. And I denied him, and yet he still loved me and forgave me and gave me a ministry to fulfill. Can we see the ways that we're like Nehemiah? Can we see the ways that we're not like Nehemiah? Can can we see aspects of our lives, loved ones, where we're like Jesus? Can we see the ways that we're not like Jesus? Can we encourage one another? Can we help one another to follow in his steps? That's what Nehemiah did. And last we we see this, he lived for an eternal purpose. He lived for an eternal purpose. Nehemiah's life impacted future generations for Jesus Messiah. Nehemiah's ultimate focus was not upon the gates and the walls, but upon the Lord, upon the people, the people of God, the work of God. His focus included all that was temporal, but was set primarily upon that which is eternal. Okay, so it wasn't either or. He wasn't just over in you know, Persia, like, Lord, your will be done, your will be done, You're ultimate, You're sovereign, you'll do it all. No, it, there was a temporal it, role for him to play with his life. There was something that needed to be done, and so he went there, and he did it. But his ultimate focus is on the work of God, the glory of God, the people of God, and it comes down to the final, the final notes about his life. What does he want to be remembered for? What is important to him? I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. I provided the, well, there's a glamorous, I brought the wood for the camp out. They need wood for the offerings. I'll give it. That's not a very glamorous gift but it's necessary. And so he gave. And he gave the first fruits. It's one thing, loved ones, to have people honor you, to remember you for a while. However, though, if we think about this, if God remembers you, it's a big difference there. If God remembers you, then your legacy will never be forgotten. Samson cried out in Judges 16, 28, and it's his dying breath. A man that was the strongest man that ever lived, and he couldn't defeat lust. The desperation for a relationship with a woman. He just couldn't live without a woman. And lust got the best of him. In his dying breath, there he is in the Philistine temple, and he's put by the two supporting pillars. His eyes have been gouged out, his hair is now grown back. In his dying breath, what does he pray? Remember me. Do you still see me in a foreign land? that I couldn't stay home with my people, and I just kept looking for the grass being greener out on the other side, and I gave away everything of my position of judge and influence, I leveraged it all for my lust. But do you still remember me? Will you remember me, God? And did the Lord remember him? Yes, never out of his sight. The man who could no longer physically see in his dying breath, he does what it needs to be, what we all need to come to, remember me. Hannah cried out in First Samuel 1, 19, or verse 11. There she is in her barrenness. Remember Eli, he was looking like, who's this, who's this drunk woman in the, in the house of the Lord? I need to deal with her, you know, I'm gonna fix her. What's wrong with her? and she's so brokenhearted, and she's pouring out her soul to the Lord, and there she is in her barrenness, and she's saying, remember me. They go home in chapter one, verse 19, a few verses later, and the Lord remembered her. She's a nobody, but the Lord remembered her, and we're talking about her now thousands of years later. Just let that sink in. The psalmist cried out, Psalm 25, verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth. Do we need to pray that, huh? Or my transgressions, let's forget that. Can you forgive that, my wrongdoing? Don't keep that before you, Lord. Let's put that away. And the only way that can be put away is under the blood of Jesus. But according to your steadfast love, There's that, Nehemiah said it, your chesed, your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Does Nehemiah have this in mind when he's praying? Remember me. Nehemiah must have heard the word of God about remembrance through Malachi that That ministry happened while he was back in Persia. And somehow, maybe that is influencing chapter 13 in Nehemiah's cry for remember me, remember me, remember me, Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Are you catching this? There were people who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, and then there were others who didn't. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Except one son wasn't spared. One son was not spared, and he served faithfully so that you and I can be spared. Verse 18, then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between Nehemiah and Eliashib, between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You think that influenced Nehemiah? Lord, do you see the difference? I'm your servant. I'm yours, remember me. Jesus taught his disciples and therefore us to observe the Lord's table in a manner that allows us to do what the Lord said. Luke 22, 19, do this in remembrance of me. Loved ones, if I let my schedule get crowded out and I am not gathering with the people of God, I'm disobeying Jesus, who I say died for me. Not important. Something else is more important than doing what Jesus said do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. The dying thief had just enough time to admit that he was a guilty sinner in need of a Savior. And he cried out to the man on the middle cross in faith. What did he say? Remember me. Remember me. Verse 42 of Luke 23. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. That seems like a pretty simple prayer, doesn't it? Haven't we been hearing this all throughout the pages of Scripture? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what happens when someone, a sinner like this guy who deserved to be hanging there, like the guy on the other side? In verse 43, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paraphrase, I'll remember you. I won't forget you. You're with me. That's the whole story of Scripture. That goes all the way back to Genesis, that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and he was with them until they bought the lie. As God said, God's not good. He's holding out on you. Go ahead. It'll be okay. That's every sin. That's every temptation that we encounter. Here's what God has said. Shh, calm down. No big deal. You'll be okay. Do it. Go there. Do whatever. Be your own person. But this thief, his record and his dying breath is drastically different from another individual that Jesus told us about. He told us about a rich man in Luke 12. And this man died drastically different than Nehemiah drastically different than the thief on the cross. Luke 12, verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, I'm talking to myself now, so we're in trouble. Soul, you have laid up ample goods, laid up for many years. Soul? How is your soul going to enjoy any grain? He's so rich, he's just convinced. And whatever I say must be true. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. What's he saying? Life is good. I'm the guy, I have everything, and then some. So he's drafting up plans. Oh, my house, yeah, everybody loves my house. Everybody loves my barns. I'm gonna tear those barns down, build newer, bigger barns just so everybody can go by with their donkey like, he's tearing that down, I I wish I had that just so I can build a new, bigger one. He is so rich, I wish I was that guy have a ring of modern, you know, culture to it. But God said to him, verse 20, fool. Old King James, thou fool. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus takes it away from us, thinking about this rich man and he died and he had everything and I could use some, you know. And Jesus then turns this to us and to his audience in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is bankrupt in spiritual things. No time for that. I have no time for God. I have no riches. I'm not laying any treasure up in heaven. I have no time for God. I'm rich and I have stuff and I have accomplishments and I have this and I have that and I go here and I go there and I have, I have, me, my, and they're bankrupt. And Jesus says, don't forget the words of God to that rich guy. Fool. It's a moral indictment. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. I'm God. Two questions for us as we end this series. And I'm changing this now. Instead of asking us the question, what do I want people to remember me for? Now I want to borrow from Nehemiah and say, what do I want God? What do we want God to remember? Because here's the thing about God. He doesn't forget he can forgive and put away our sin. But he's not like me when I get in the grocery store and can't remember the three things I was supposed to get and I buy the very same thing that I bought every other time I go to the grocery store. There's a spice in our cupboard. There's like four of them. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> not even lying here. Just nuts, you know? What is it, parsley? I just keep buying the same dumb, like, <laughs> what do we need this for? I don't know. Something tells me in my mind, I need more of this. (laughs) Fool, (laughs) laying up parsley. God doesn't forget. He's not like you and me. Where was I supposed to be today? What was I supposed to do? God remembers, but what do you want him to remember about you? That you love his son, that you love his church, that you love him, that you have a heart for people who don't know him yet, then that has to be part of our lives, loved ones. It has to go from the to-do list to doing, to being, to abiding in him. And the other question is this, what lesson are we taking away from Nehemiah that I need to live out in my life? God, help me to take this lesson from Nehemiah and learn to live it out and apply this in my life. Share that with someone today. Let them pray with you and for one another about this. I've used it before, and I want to close this series with a couple of quotes, but John Piper, for many years I gave out his book to young people as they graduated, Don't Waste Your Life. And he says this, he says, but whatever you do, and this isn't just to high school seniors, okay? We can all put our names in there. Find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way, your way to say it and live for it and if necessary, die for it and you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. C.T. Studd said it this way, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And if we learn anything from Nehemiah, it learns that we have to put our schedules on the table. We have to put our checkbook on the table. We have to put our gifts that God has given to us on the table. How am I leveraging all of this for the glory of God and the good of all peoples? How am I holding back? How am I saying this, mine, mine? When I keep it, it's when I give it away. Everything that I try to keep, I lose. You get that? Do I get that? If I give it to God and leverage it for his glory, I keep it forever. If I keep it as mine, I lose it. And it may be this week. It may be in some decades. But when my heart stops beating, everything that I have kept in my grasp, in my clutches, is gone forever. But whatever I put into his care, forever remembered. Let's stand together. Father, I thank you for this powerful book, for this leader. Father, I pray these lessons over us that we will live in consecration to you. May our lives be wholly devoted to you, Lord. Help us to support your work sacrificially and generously, Lord. Help us to honor you on the Lord's day, that we worship you together, that we rest, that we learn how to rest and enjoy you and your people and your goodness. Help us, Lord, to obey the scriptures from the heart. Help us, Lord, to trust you with all the results for you hold the records and you hold the rewards and you are good and all that you do is good. So Father, help me, help us to trust you. For anyone who's never repented of their sin and trusted in you, then let that word from the thief on the cross be theirs today. And may they admit their sin and say, remember me. And you are faithful to your word to remember. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name.
0: Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church.